Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Pensions Experts' fortnightly podcast. Though fully half the industry has disappeared, we assume because they are all on holiday and not because Thanos has clicked his fingers very specifically for pension scheme trustees and the like, uh, we still have things to talk about. We will lead with the news that the Pensions Administration and Standards Association has updated its guaranteed minimum pensions equalisation guidance to take account of the Lloyd's judgment of last year. Although it does provide useful clarity on a number of technical points, important issues remain unaddressed and we'll ask whether these are fixable or whether the industry now has as much information as it could probably get, at least from a legal standpoint on GMP equalisation. Uh, next, a report from Broadridge shows Master Trusts are on the up. They took on £30 billion of assets in 2020, and this trend will only accelerate over the next decade. So we'll ask what comes next for consolidation. And penultimately, everyone has an ESG solution. We've been told that the custom bespoke index strategies can be a better than an off-the-shelf model for, for pension schemes. Uh, we will ask if this is so or whether there are drawbacks to DIY ESG, as there do seem to be drawbacks to DIY everything else. I'm Benjamin Mercer. I'm a reporter of Pensions Experts, and we're joined today by Richard Butcher, Managing Director at PTL, uh, with whom we also hope to discuss the future of the PLSA and the pensions universe more broadly. Richard is the chair of the PLSA, but is due to stand down in according to October this year. So change is on the horizon. So you're in a good position to enlighten us uh, on that topic. But uh, we will kick off with GMP equalisation, which is probably tiring to everyone who's listening to it. So we'll only do it fairly lightly. It's, it is, of course, a worthwhile exercise. And Pass's guidance has, as I said in the intro, uh, done a lot to to sort of clarify some technical points around top-up payments, but it has also highlighted outstanding problems. Um, there's uncertainty around the actual business of equalisation. The guidance has actually suggested employers might need to offer indemnities for trustees, especially for schemes in wind-up if, for one of many reasons, they're unable to complete equalisation exercises. And one of those myriad reasons could be missing data, disappearing members, um, and there's, of course, this legal uncertainty between how the lawyer's judgment interacts with the 1994 Collaral case. Richard, do you want to kick us off on uh, GMP? It says in the guidance that uh, because of the cost of all of this, this might actually be the last we get from the courts in terms of settling some of these problems. Is that a prediction you would agree with or is there still more clarity that can come from the, the legal process? So I think it's certainly all we can expect in the immediate foreseeable future. There's nothing else in the pipeline that I'm aware of that's going to uh, to give us any more clarity. Sorry, I should have said, first of all, hello, Benjamin, and hello, everybody else. Yes, I'm not on holiday. The PASA report is brilliant. It's an absolutely wonderful collection, simple to read guidance on how to deal with this. And I'm sure the other half of the industry that is on holiday is taking it with them to, to read on the beach. But no, I don't think we're going to get much more legal guidance about this in, in the short term. That said, GMPs generally have been the gift that have kept on giving to lawyers. And, and I expect that they will continue to give in the future. There will be legal challenge around some of these areas and around some of the technicalities about how to deal with these things. And there'll inevitably as well also be litigation in due course for those people who have been missed, passed over, rounded down, rounded up or whatever else. So GMP equalisation, it's not going away anytime soon. No, that was the slightly disheartening quote, I think, from Passo when they published the guidance that we are still in the foothills of GMP equalisation. <laughs> what sort of sums are we talking about for members who are involved? Because, I mean, obviously that, that factors into the cost of appealing against any particular GMP decision. What sums are we talking about for members? Is it even worth, in some cases, going through this lengthy and expensive process? Ooh, now that does depend on your perspective. If you were the member missing out on £2 a week, then it's definitely worth having. 
uh, particularly if you're on a very low income. So, you know, let's not ignore any of this on in terms of absolute size. But you hint there at a very important point, which is one of proportionality. So first of all, can we quantify it? Well, no, not really. I, I mean, in the terms of a schemes valuation for a typical defined benefit scheme, and it can depend on lots of variables, you might be talking about one, two, three percent of liabilities. So not particularly material. Uh, of course, if the scheme aimed to provide relatively low benefits and the members were generally low paid, then the impact could be a lot higher than that. Interestingly, also in the past uh, guidance, which talked about rectifying those that have previously been paid, one of their contributors has estimated that the average top-up payment might be of the order of £1,000, which to my mind doesn't sound particularly material in terms of transfers from a defined benefit scheme. I, I look at this slightly through loathing eyes as I say, GMPs have been the gift that have kept on giving both to lawyers and to the wider industry who've been able to charge a fee for doing this. But I feel real sorrow and real compassion for the employer, you know, the employer who in the 1970s thought, well, I want to look after my employees and do the right thing for them. So I'm going to provide them with a high quality benefit and set about doing that with a stable contribution rate of 10 to 12 percent of payroll, who now 40, 50 years later is being told not only is it going to cost you millions and millions of pounds in deficit repayment contributions, but also the process costs, the operating costs have gone through the roof. And GMP rectification, GMP equalisation is just another layer of cost for that poor employer who is genuinely trying to do good for their employees. So I look at it from the employer's perspective and think, well, is this proportionate to the benefit that will actually be felt? In some cases, yes, but in other cases, I think hopelessly not. No, I mean, that, I mean that, that sort of poses an interesting problem for future employers, doesn't it? In that, as you said, having tried to do the right thing, have landed themselves in a completely unexpected and unintended quagmire. Does it put people off doing the same thing in future if they're if they're concerned that maybe in, a, in an attempt to be generous, this thing could there could be a new GMP issue in thirty years' time, which they'll be on the hook for, and to avoid that, they'll do everything they can. It's entirely possible. You could argue, and you know, there were lots of final nails in the coffin of DB. You could argue that GMPs were one of those final nails. It was certainly contributory to the widespread closure of defined benefit pension schemes. And I think it's going to be a very, very long time before any CFO is willing to sign up to providing any form of guarantee to an employee for post-work, post-retirement income, um, make a back in some way, shape or form. It, it may also cast a shadow over the potential for the CDC market. So, you know, we've now got legislation for CDC. There is, as far as I'm aware, only one customer for it at the moment, the Royal Mail. But more may follow. There may be a demand for it. And although CDC doesn't provide any guarantees, there may be a few employers who look at it and with their lawyers and think, well, does this give the appearance of a guarantee? Is there a risk of a legal argument in the future that we created a reasonable expectation that we could be on the hook for? So I think it could cast a shadow, obviously not in its strict sense, it could cast a shadow over, over CDC. DC's less of an issue, but hey, you know, litigation's a funny thing. These all, all sorts of litigation could emerge in the future, and um, we can't entirely know what it is. Of course, these days, employers do have to provide a pension scheme for those who don't opt out. 
but but yeah, there's always the risk of a liability being newly defined. And on the subject of liabilities, and of course, as we mentioned, as you say, GMP is is lovely for lawyers. And also on, on the subject of the, the decline of DB schemes, so the, the guidance does specify, doesn't it, that there are problems, particular problems to schemes in wind-up at the moment, and especially the trustees of those schemes. You know, there are all kinds of data troubles with GMP that take a long time to solve. Members might have gone missing. The data might not be there. And the guidance says, you know, it's uncertain the extent to which trustees would be protected by statutory advertisements and or if runoff insurance would provide protection. In practice, employers may need to provide indemnities to trustees of schemes in the wind-up to cover such liabilities. Is that something that they're seized of the need of? Is it a widespread problem? Is it happening already? Or are trustees going to be sort of knocking on the door of their legal department and saying, help us, please? I think they probably will be knocking on the door uh, of the legal department and looking for help. And more particularly, they'll be knocking on the door of the CFO saying, we'd like an unlimited indemnity from you. Whether they'll get that or not is another matter, but they'll be knocking on the door trying to. Yeah, I mean, there are solutions to this. In a buyout, it's possible to pay a premium on top of the basic cost such that you can shift that liability from yourselves as trustees to the insurer and the insurer will take it on the basis of an insurance premium. It's also possible for a scheme to go through buyout but carry a residual risk on its balance sheet um, so I've seen various tools being used, but but you're right, we shouldn't underplay this. This is really difficult, particularly in the case of past service transfers. You know, this isn't time limited. If somebody chose to transfer out in the 1980s or 1990s, this, it seems, means that we now have a liability to them or we have a residual liability to them. Now, you bear in mind the data standards. Data standards these days are pretty good, but in the old days, if you had a no liability member, you pretty much deleted everything. You kept their name and where they transferred to in case they came out of the woodwork later on and said, well, I want my benefits. You could say, well, you were transferred over there. But you didn't, you know, data protection rules didn't allow you to keep much more than that. So how are we going to identify these people? Much less, how are we going to reconstruct and recalculate their benefits based on the records that were kept 20, 30 years ago? I mean, it's, 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 it's a massive, massive task. Well, I think we, we are exhausted of GMP. We should be exhausted by GMP by now. Everybody I'm absolutely exhausted by GMP. Anyway, we'll move on from um, issues stretching into the past to issues stretching into the future. And this is the Broadridge report showing that master trusts are on the up. They picked up £30 billion in assets during 2020. They drove overall market growth rates of 15%. Uh, the Broadridge's uh, Navigator report estimates Master Trust would have reached £461 billion by the end of the decade, and that will make up more than 40% of a £1.1 trillion market. They will grow at an average rate of 24% a year from now until 2029. They'll also account for about 75% of total trust-based assets by 2029, the Broadridge reports uh, estimates. And, of course, there are, there are sort of winners and losers emerging early from the Master Trust markets. Uh, would that be a fair summation? Uh, some of the interesting figures from the Broadridge report, I mean, the, the independent type Master Trusts picked up something like 90% asset growth over the course of 2019, picking up a lot of small members. How are you sort of diagnosing the, the state of the Master Trust market? Are we seeing winners and losers in the different types of models at this early stage? Or is it still a little bit too early to start saying what the model of the future is? Well, yes, we are. So when we went through master trust authorization, there were an awful lot of losers. We significantly culled the number of DC master trusts in the marketplace as a result of authorization. Well, even that population hasn't stabilized. The number that went through authorization has since reduced. 
as some of those with authorization have consented to merge with others. Basically, somebody sold their book of business. There will be winners and losers in the future, but the market's going to fragment slightly into different market players. You're going to have Nest, who's just going to be the, the provider of last resort. And I don't mean that in any way to minimize their proposition. It's a great proposition. But they have a statutory duty to take anything, and they'll grow like Bilio as a consequence. Then you've got the sort of mainline auto-enrollment providers who have taken on, to some extent, that Nest mantra of taking on pretty much anything. So the likes of the people's pension, potentially smart pensions, now pensions. And, and I expect they'll succeed, but it's not guaranteed for them. And then you've got the, well, not necessarily boutique, but the more commercial providers, the traditional commercial providers, the insurers, the consultants, who might be a bit more picky and choosy about what they take. They don't necessarily want the auto-enrollment work, but they do want good quality DC with assets under management. So not all of those models can work. And, and, and certainly, if you if you go back many, many years to when the chair of a certain master trust or the certain chair of a master trust was at the regulator and his rule of thumb was there will be no more than 10 master trusts. So the market will consolidate further. It's also sort of supported by the government agenda and the regulatory agenda. The regulator's got an awful lot of schemes to regulate and it would prefer to have fewer schemes. So consolidation is good from a regulatory perspective. And as a consequence, good for those of us who are regulated by the regulator, because it means their resources are less thinly stretched. And from the legislator's perspective, well, at the moment, they're talking a lot about productive finance, getting pension schemes to invest in the long UK economy. And that is best achieved, although not exclusively achieved, through scale DC provision. So there's a lot of people who are gently nudging towards consolidation. So there will be more consolidation. And in that context, amongst the providers, there will be winners and losers. What's going to distinguish between a winner and a loser in the commercial market? Well, investment and investment style probably isn't going to cause you to lose the market. It might cause you to lose a case or two. Uh, administration should be largely a hygiene factor. Everyone administers to a high standard these days. That whether you turn something around in 36 hours or 40 hours isn't going to make you lose the market. Governance isn't going to cause you to win or lose the market because good governance is good governance. You can't have better governance. Pricing will remain important. And those who have the resources to be able to compete will have an advantage over those who don't have those resources. Uh, but I think the key components that will dictate success are, one, distribution, because you can't win new business unless you've got some distribution channel. And secondly, the quality of the way that you engage with the members. You know, pension schemes, we've tended to operate in isolation from people's finances in the past. We've tended almost to ignore the members, certainly in a DB world. In DC, We've got to engage with the members and we've got to do that far more smartly. We've got to take the member by the hand and lead them through this journey. And, and so the quality of that engagement is what's going to distinguish the good master trusts from the also runs. Uh, and yeah, the also runs will eventually inevitably fail, um, which means consolidation into another master trust. I mean, it would almost seem slightly counterintuitive. Obviously, you know, if you speak to someone who administers a small scheme or who, you know, whose job depends on the existence of a small scheme, they will always 
sing the virtues and praises of small schemes. But, but one of the things that they might say is that actually having a, a small scheme in particular, something that hasn't been consolidated, isn't part of this broader body, allows for more direct and personal communication with a member than perhaps a, a larger scheme or certainly a consolidated sort of master trust would hmm. do. Notwithstanding, of course, the fact that master trusts have, have greater resources to, to devote to this. From, from what you said there, it, it sounds almost the opposite is in fact the case. So in theory, smaller schemes might be more personal. In practice, they haven't been. And master trusts can do more than them for member communication. Am I passing that correctly? I mean, is that something that you know, will, will improve? So first of all, your last question was my prognosis for the future, which I gave you. I wasn't commenting at all on ah. the quality or ability <laughs> of anybody. The evidence shows from the regulator that small schemes tend to be poorer governed compared to big schemes. But that doesn't mean to say that poor schemes are all poorly governed. There are some incredibly well-governed smaller schemes who do an incredibly great job for their members. Why should they be forced to consolidate? And you know, if, if they're delivering value for money to their members, then they shouldn't be forced to consolidate. They should, they should continue to be able to operate. And I've got a lot of sympathy with the arguments that you put forward in your question there, Benjamin. One of the disadvantages of scale, there are advantages, but there are disadvantages. One of the disadvantages is that the governance is, by definition, further away from the members. You know, there are trustee meetings I've been in where when we've been discussing the claim of a particular member, my co-trustee has been able to give me evidence based on personal experience of that particular member. I used to sit next to them, so let me tell you what I think and what they might think. That just doesn't happen in a, de- in, in a master trust world. So, yeah, there are downsides. Master trusts aren't all a positive one-way journey. That smaller schemes do bring benefits, can bring value for money, can definitely bring value for money to members and can be advantageous to members. Right. I think with an eye on the time, we'll do ESG and DIY as a coder. I, I don't want to diminish in any way what, uh, what SIGTECH does, but of course, whenever you see a company which provides bespoke index strategies, saying that bespoke index strategies are the best thing in the world, you kind of think WANS is the Pope to the Catholic. But nevertheless, yeah. they argue that it does have its benefits. Off-the-shelf models aren't always as tailored to schemes ESG needs as bespoke models can be. Custom equity portfolios allow owners to, uh, the quote is, define the investable universe. And I'm going to pretend I know exactly what that means. But, well, do they? I mean, is, is there an argument for bespoke models? Um, do, do they fall maybe in one of those the areas that, that big schemes can sort of afford to play around with if they like, but small schemes have to be a bit more focused and off the shelf will suit them better, do you think? Yeah, I mean, it, look, it's great to see innovation uh, in the marketplace. And this is a proposition that I'm sure will tick the box for some schemes. And there is absolutely a need for schemes to get to grips with ESG. ESG is about identifying and long and, and mitigating long-term financial risks with specific reference to environmental, social and governance factors, and particularly in relation to climate risk. Uh, and schemes need to do more to grapple with that. Where I see this being deployed as a particular potential solution is for those schemes who currently used pooled funds. In a pooled fund, there's very little you can do to influence the behavior of the underlying fund manager other than to vote with your feet. We're going to buy you, we're going to sell you, we're hiring you, we're firing you. This does provide some schemes with an opportunity to do more than just vote with their feet. So they can actually wade in, specify their portfolio, build their portfolio, and and actually have some direct influence over stewardship and, and other factors. 
Excellent. Well, okay. In which case, we, we will move on from ESG. We'll round off on a round off, I suppose it would be, wouldn't it? Um, your time as PLSA chair. Now, am I right? I think that's been about four years. Is it five? Will it be five years at <laughs> the time? Yeah, it feels like about 100 years, but it will have been four years. So your, your highlights from your, your time there, I mean, you say it feels like 100 years. Is there a particular highlight reel that perhaps explains that feeling? Has it been, <laughs> is it challenging, especially given that the sheer pace of regulation, for example, you have to keep on top of over these last five years? I mean, what's been sort of the oh. defining thing of your... COVID has been okay. the defining thing of my term of office as chair. Let me start at the beginning. You know, when I became chair uh, four years ago, just uh, under four years ago, what I said I wanted to do was open up the PLSA. I wanted more members, more involved in the policy and other work of the PLSA. And we have achieved that beyond my wildest dreams. Far more members are involved in the PLSA. We understand our members far more than we used to. We are delivering to them a great value proposition, and we make a serious, significant and important contribution when it comes to the development of pensions policy and pensions regulation. So on that metric and on that metric alone, the four-year period of time has been a great period of time during which the team, and I'm incredibly grateful for the PLSA team, have knocked the ball out of the park in terms of the objectives I set them. But yeah, it's been a challenging four years. And the challenges come in part from the sheer volume of regulation and legislation. I mean, there has been a lot. And some of that regulation and legislation has been and is going to be really significant. I mean, the focus on ESG, absolutely right. You know, not knocking that at all. It's what we need to do. But it is hugely demanding on pension schemes. Section 107 of the Pension Schemes Act 2021, the new cre- the creation of new criminal sanctions for trustees, it scares trustees witless. Despite all the kind and um, gentle words being issued by the regulator, it is scaring trustees absolutely witless. I know trustees who have resigned because they are scared. So, you know, there has been an awful lot. The amount of stuff that we have to do has increased exponentially. And I'm not sure that in the aggregate, it adds to better member outcomes, good member outcomes, members more likely to receive a good income in retirement. Uh, so that's been demanding. But COVID, has, as I say, has been the defining factor. It's obviously something that we didn't anticipate when I took on the chair. I mean, again, you know, I have to sing the praises of the team at the PLSA. Operationally, they shifted from the office to home with the minimum of fuss. They continued to operate. And in fact, they even upped their game, which is absolutely fantastic. They are a brilliant team and they will be wonderfully supportive of Emma Douglas as she takes the role on from me. But where it's really hit us is, you know, we're, we're a not-for-profit organisation. We aim to make a surplus each year, a modest surplus, because we can't afford to make a loss. No business can. And we knew we were going to lose, shed loads of money. Now, we managed to recover the position. We made a loss, but it was roughly half what we could have lost. And and so that was a good result. But the PLSA could have died at that point in time. And it's only because the board, and I don't necessarily mean this board, although this board continued the policy, but the boards that preceded me, the chairs that have preceded me, and the chairman that have preceded me, who insisted that we have a prudent reserve to cover business shocks, that we were able to withstand that. 
you know, we made a big loss last year because of the loss of all of that revenue. But the PLSA is still there. The PLSA is still strong. The PLSA is still delivering on its vital message, on its vital part in, in building strong uh, regulation and legislation. So there's been some big shocks. It's felt like 400 years because there's been so much work to do, but also because it's been so intensive, so enjoyable, such a good time. I've been, I've met lots of really interesting people within the organization, the members, but also outside of the world. I'm going to miss it, really. I'm going to miss it. But the team at the PLSA are great. They are wonderful. And they deserve the industry support. Well, no, that's a nice way nice way on which to end. We could spend a whole episode on, on the PLSA experience, and, and perhaps we shall do so in the future. But for the meantime, that does bring us to the close of the program. So thank you, Richard, very much for joining us. Uh, thank you to our audience for listening to us as ever. We will be back in two weeks' time. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.